on the guitar. I forgot to ask him about a, an offertory. That's funny. Funny for me, not for Matt, probably. <clears throat> I, I like, one of the things I like to do occasionally, I think I've actually done it in here, is the whole word game uh, thing where the word pictures. And uh, I wanted to, to throw a couple at you tonight. And so you're going to have to be like the youth ministry and be interactive a little bit tonight, okay? So if you're not interactive, this is no fun and we get nothing out of it. So tell me, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you hear the word book? <laughs> Boring school, reading. Okay, we're getting the hangout. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you hear orange? <laughs> Man, let's go. All right. All right. What's the uh, first thing that comes to mind when you hear big blue? <laughs> All right, Commodores. Okay. Uh, now see if Cliff, is Cliff here? No Cliff? Cliff would think what? Big Blue? Michigan. Yeah, if we were in Michigan, we would think that, right? What is the first thing that comes to mind when you hear Jesus? Savior, salvation, what else? God. Lord. Wonderful. Anything else? Servant. Jehovah. <clears throat> Let me read this to you. I want you to listen very carefully. If you, if you want to, if it helps you to close your eyes, this is a, a very um, descriptive uh, passage of God's Word in Psalm 19. Uh, we'll be getting in verse 11. I want to read this to you. and Listen very carefully. and we'll, we'll be in, You don't have to turn to it yet. We'll be in there. You can turn to it. But we'll be in there a lot tonight. Listen to this description of Jesus. And I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We're very accustomed to a lot of the pictures of Jesus. We, we see and we think often of the pictures of of Christ welcoming the children with children on his lap. We see often what is the most common picture that we think of when we hear the, word, the name Jesus is the crucifixion or the resurrection, the empty tomb, the flowing white robe or the, the robe with the, the purple around it. We, we think of a lot of different things when we think of Christ, right? How often do we think of him as a warring Messiah, a warrior Messiah that, that comes triumphantly in victory to wage war. Not often. Not often. Do you know this is an important passage? This is only, there's only two times in Scripture where, where Jesus is said to wage war or to be warring. The other, the other one is in Revelation 2.16 where he says that he's going to wage war on Pergamum if they do not repent. So, so this is only one of two times in Scripture where, where Christ is said to wage war. And it gives us a picture of kind of a different side of Christ. A, a new understanding of who Christ is, that he is also the warrior Messiah. 
And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. Now, we're not going to try to explain the entire book of Revelation tonight because I don't know if I had all year. I know I couldn't do that. And, and I don't claim, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you, I don't have all the answers to Revelation. So I'm already, you know, I was sitting in my office earlier thinking, man, I know what, what's going to happen as soon as we get through People are going to come and go, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? Hey, hey, do you believe this? Where are you stand on this? <laughs> I'm going to be like, I don't know, you know? And so I'm going to go ahead and answer all of your questions for after the sermon with I don't know, okay? But what I, I do know is that this passage is one of my favorite passages in the Scripture. I shared it with the youth at camp, and uh, I told them, I said, man, this is, I just love this passage. Because when I read this passage, this is one that makes me want to stand up and just shout, and go, that's my Savior. That's Him. That is my Lord. I mean, you, you have this picture of him coming out of heaven, just bursting out of heaven on a white horse. No meek and mild Jesus here. I mean, Jesus coming, and he's coming to take care of business. You know, it's the, the image you think, you know how you've, you've gone to, to Rupp or you've gone to uh, UK's football field, and when, when the basketball team runs on the court, when the football team comes out of the tunnel, or like at Lambeau Field in Green Bay, man, when the Packers come out of the tunnel, what happens? It erupts. Why? Everybody's screaming with excitement and pride. And, and, and that's them. That's our team. And, and he, I have that kind of that same thing, that Christ burst out of heaven. The army is heaven following after him. And praise God that I can stand before you and I can stand before him on that day or wherever, wherever it's going to be. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But, and say, man, that is my Savior. That's my King. That's my Lord. Wow. Praise God. Before we go further, let's talk a little bit about the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation, most of you know, is written by the Apostle, uh, Apostle John uh, from the island of Patmos. And, and a lot of scholars would put it in the late 90s. Some would put it earlier. Uh, there, there's a little bit of debate whether he wrote in the time of the, the reign of Nero or the, the time of Domitian. Uh, but the, the genre, the literary style would probably be what I, I would say is prophetic apocalypse. And there, here's, why, here's why. Let me describe that to you for a second. Re Revelation is a very hard book sometimes to read and, and to interpret. Uh, there's a lot of parts that's very symbolic, and it's just tough to get your head around. I mean, it is very, a lot of images, a lot of things going on, descriptions that we're going, man, what is this literal, symbolic, what's going on? There, there's three characteristics of Revelation that would make it classify as an apocalyptic work. The first thing is, it, is it's eschatological, and what that means, it deals with the end times, okay? It deals with the time when God breaks into all of history, breaks into the, the present, so to speak, and brings everything to culmination. He brings everything to a final end. So it deals with the end times when God brings everything to an end. The second thing is it's dualistic, okay? Now, this is not, be careful here, it's not dualistic in the, in the manner of, of saying that, that evil and God are on the same level, that they're in this epic battle and we don't know who's going to win. It's not, it's not dualistic in that way at all. The, where it's dualistic, and what I mean by that is that it had much meaning historically and temporally for the people that heard it. The recipients had a lot of meaning there, but also it has great future significance, okay? There's a lot of images and stuff that he would say, hey, this is what's going to happen in the end. And so it's kind of dualistic, had a dual nature to it. The last thing is that it magnifies God's providence, okay? It magnifies God's providence. It serves to encourage the people that, that God would work out his will and would carry everything out to completion exactly the way he intended he will carry out his plan, and that serves an encouragement to the people that would have received it. Now, Revelation is not the only apocalyptic work. There are, there are many apocalyptic works that were written 
uh, over about a 200-year span of time uh, to the Jews. But, but this is one of the, the one that's in our scripture. Uh, Daniel would be an Old Testament example of an apocalyptic work. Um, like, like we said, it's symbolic. Mark Dever, if you have not picked up, there's a book in the book nook over there. And it's written by Mark Dever. It's the message of the New Testament. He's also got one that's the message of the Old Testament. If you haven't picked that up, that's worth your money. And what it is, it's the introduction to the New Testament, introduction to the Old Testament is what it is. But, but he, the way he wrote it, he preached through the Bible. And he, basically each chapter is his sermon on that book, just a broad overview. And he gives a great picture of each one. The, the picture that he gives, kind of the overall message of Revelation is fantastic. So I highly recommend that. But he points this out. When, when you're dealing with the symbolism and all the, the symbolic nature of the book, he says this. He says there's much... In, in the midst of all the symbolism, there's much that's easy to understand, and these are the most important parts. That a lot of times people get so caught up on all the symbolism and what does that mean and why well, I think it means that and I think it means that. They get real caught up in that that they miss that some of the most important parts are the very clear things that aren't that hard to understand. And so in Revelation, we want to look at those clear things and say, hey, here's something. We, we, I may not be so sure about what this thing is that sounds really weird. <laughs> you know, those beasts with all the heads and tails and crowns, all that stuff. I don't know what that means exactly. But you know what? What I do know is that the message of Revelation is what? That Christ will reign supreme. That God will be victorious. That's the overall main theme is the, the surety, the assurance of God's ultimate victory. That no matter what happens, no matter how dark the days look now, we know that God has placed in his word and said, look, you're, you're going to be tested. You're going to be tried. You're going to go through tribulation and trials. But here in the book of Revelation, I've written to you and explained that I will reign supreme. I will rule. And my plan will be carried out. And we know that. There's not this, well, I hope, I hope God's big enough to get over the devil. You know, there, we don't have to worry about that at all. Okay, that's the main thing. And Endeavor points out, again, I'm coming back to Endeavor here. He points out that he says there's four uh, very prominent themes and images in the book of Revelation. It's very important for people to understand when you study it. The, the first one is the throne. Okay, throughout the, throughout the book, you see this image of the throne coming back time and time and time and time again. And what that shows, it talks about, it's, it's identifying God's sovereign rule, that God rules supreme. The second image is the storms. Okay, and that, that's interesting. You know, the, the first song we sang there, the Revelation song, refers to storms, right? And, and you see throughout the book of Revelation, references to storms, and these reference God's judgment. Each time a storm comes in relation to God's judgment. The third image is the lamb. And, and you all know this is, this is God's perfect redemption, the lamb, the son of God, Jesus Christ, who redeemed his people, okay? So you have the lamb throughout the book. And then finally, you have references to the city, the, the final image that he says is crucial is God's new creation, right? And so he says these four images are crucial and important to your understanding of the book. And those first two really tie into our message tonight, the, the throne and the storms, God's sovereign rule and his judgment. Okay, as we look at Revelation 19, we see those a lot. The, the last thing we need to make mention of in Revelation, because everybody's thinking about it probably, if not a lot of people are, is the whole debate and a lot, what, what typically gets talked about in Revelation is where do, you, where do you stay on the millennium? When Christ returns, how's it going to look? And all that stuff, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, all these throwing around big words, and then you have breakdowns of those and all that stuff. And, and I'm going to say this, for tonight, for our sake, we're all going to fall under the umbrella of the panmillennialist, okay? It's all going to pan out. 
God's got it in control, and we're going to roll with that, okay? So we'll all agree on that. Some of you may differ on some of the other theological stuff, and that's okay. We can agree to disagree on that. Uh, I'm right, and you're wrong on that, okay? But we'll all unite under pan-millennialism tonight. Okay, so let's jump into it. We've got Revelation out of the way. We totally understand the book of Revelation now. So let's look at Revelation 19. Look at verse 11. And let's look at what, it, what is this picture that God gives us of Jesus as a warrior Messiah. What does it tell us about God? Look at the first part. In verse 11, he says, well, he says, I saw heaven opened. Now, what do you think back to? When you see that, when you have, what do you think back to? I, I think back to Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets a brief glimpse of the activity of heaven, right? He, he sees what's going on, the worship around the throne, and he's kind of peeking through the door, so to speak, of heaven, right? And then you see in Revelations 4.1, if you flip over there, you don't have to right now, but you can jot it down in your notes. Revelation 4.1, again, heaven was opened to show John the activity that's going on, okay? So again, you have these images of, of the heaven, the doors of heaven being opened up, and you have John and Isaiah kind of peering in and seeing the activity of heaven. Okay, here, John says, I saw heaven open, but it's a little different. It's not, it's not necessarily the picture of him peeking in the door or seeing the door open and kind of getting a glimpse. It's not that at all. It's the, it's the picture of heaven bursting open and Christ coming out. It's not, it's not John looking in with curiosity going, wow, look. It's Christ coming out in victory on the white horse with the armies of heaven behind him. It's a totally different picture of him bursting forth into, <laughs> into our world. I mean, bursting headlong into whatever's going on that day, okay? Then in verse 11, it says he's riding a white horse. And all, all of the scholars and stuff that I studied in preparation were pretty unanimous that a white horse is symbolic of victory. It's symbolic of victorious conquest. Christ is no longer riding in humiliation on a donkey. Now he comes in victory. As a Roman general would, when they would return from victory, they would, they would come through the streets of Rome riding on a white stallion. And, and now Christ is said to come out riding on a white horse. Okay, it's a, it's a symbol of victory. that He is coming in victory and triumph. And now we come in verse 19, or verse 11. There's four names given to Christ that I want us to look at tonight. Because these names give us a, a great glimpse into who Christ is. The first one is in verse 11. It, it describes him as what? Faithful and true. This is one that it seems like we come to a lot. That, that Christ is faithful to his words and promises. He's true. He is the truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is faithful and true. His name is faithful and true. Now think about this for a minute. Listen to Matthew 25, 31 to 33. Jesus says this. He says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And we see here in, in, in Revelation 19 that God is being faithful to his word. When Jesus says in Matthew, hey, I'm going to separate the sheep and the goats. I'm going to gather everyone together. It's going to be a time of judgment. And here in Revelation 19, verse 11, we see that he is holding true to his word. This will happen. He will come in judgment and be faithful to his word. Now, now we, we think often of the faithfulness of God. In, in the situation 
uh, of the stag family, for instance. We rest and cling to the faithfulness of God. We, we cling to his promises. In this, the situation of Orange Beach, some of those people are clinging with all they have to the promise that God will provide for their every need in Matthew 6. So we cling to those things. But we must also realize that God is faithful to his word in areas of this matter as well. When he says that I will come in judgment and I will separate the sheep from the goats, he's faithful to keep his word. And he will come in triumph, in victory, in judgment. And so we know that. We, we have assurance of that. And that is either warming to us or it's intimidating and dreadful. But we know that Christ is faithful and true. The second name is in verse 12. In verse 12, he's described, it says, he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Now let me explain this to you. See, I'll listen really carefully. We have no idea. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, that, we don't know what his name is. He says there's no theologian that's going to break it down and look at the Greek, oh, this, this, this. Some of them say, well, we think it's the king of kings, lord of lords. And some will say, no, it's Yahweh. And, 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 and others say, no. And, and it's like, you know what, guys? It just says that <laughs> there's a name that no one knows other than himself. Now, now, some of them will guess and say, you know what? We think it's going to be revealed at that time. But there's no reason. There's no, nothing pointing to that necessarily. But he, here's what we do know. What can we learn tonight? from that when, when we see this what do we know we know this that, that there's a certain amount of mystery in our God there, there's a certain amount that we do not know about God and that we never will because God is greater than we are he is higher than we are we are the creation he's the creator and, and there's a there's a, an amount that we will never know about him that we will never comprehend about him because he is God some of them, Ty, and I wouldn't be surprised, this, I, this, this may be a legitimate thing, but some scholars say that, that when it refers to this name, that, that it's an indication that in ancient times there, there was a lot of emphasis put on a name. That by knowing someone's name, you knew them, and you knew about them, and you had a certain amount of, of dominion or rule over them by knowing their name, a little bit of ownership. And, and so some people say, you know what, by him saying there's a name that no one knows, is another pointing to the fact that no one has rule over God. No one. There's no one who can wrap their mind around who he is. So the level of mystery. The third name, verse 13, the word of God. What does that remind you of? He's called the word of God in verse 13. You can respond. What does that remind you of? John chapter 1, yeah. John 1, the, the great prologue, the first 18 verses, the word became flesh. In the beginning was the word, right? The word of God. Now, now, while it reminds us that, it's most likely referring to the authoritative word of God. The authoritative word of God. The, the word that's described in Hebrews 4.12, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The word that does not return void. The, the word that accomplishes exactly what it's set out to achieve. In Hebrew, thought the word the a word is an active agent that achieves the purpose of the one from whom it's sent christ has come to carry out and to fulfill the divine purpose the divine will that the, the word that created all things is now bringing everything to culmination everything to completion that the, the word that created 
We'll now end it all with a word. Okay, the word of God. The, the final name is this, is verse 16. He's referred to as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That every knee shall bow and know that he is King and Lord. Every knee. He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. It reminds us of what? God's sovereign rule. God's sovereign rule. There's no one has dominion over him. There's no one greater, no one with more authority, no one that does not stand under his rule. There's no one like him. Psalm 86, 8 and 9. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. No one is like our God. So four names that identify Christ as he comes as this warrior. They give us a greater picture of who he is. Now, this morning, Scott brought a message uh, talking about the wrath, the wrath of God and the agony that Christ suffered in, in going and taking on that wrath. David Platt describes it as, as when, when Christ bore the wrath on the cross. He says it's been described as being in front of Hoover Dam and then releasing all the water and all the dam being released and the water rushing at you and right as it gets before you, the ground breaks open and swallows every bit of it. He says that's, that's a, a great description of the wrath of God, that, that Christ takes on that wrath. And, and in the garden, he agonized and wept drops of blood, overtaking that wrath on. And, and we know that, and you've heard, and some of you may in here think this same thing, that, that there's this idea that, you know, in the New Testament, God is merciful and God is loving and, and gracious. In the Old Testament, he's holy and just. But you know what? That's not true. God is the same old and new there's grace in the old testament there's mercy in the old testament and here the book of revelation is littered with the wrath of god littered all throughout it the judgment and the wrath of god romans talks about the wrath of god throughout the new testament we hear of the wrath of god and this passage you see it that, that christ comes in righteous judgment treading upon his enemies in what in wrath Listen to this. In verse 11, it says, In righteousness, he judges and wages war. In verse 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. This means nothing, nothing will escape his view. Nothing. His eyes are a flame of fire. I mean, just picture that for a moment. Picture that for a moment. The king of kings and lord of lords. He's sitting on a white horse. The king of kings, I don't know, king of kings, lord of lords, I don't know. But it, they say the reason it's inscribed there is because when someone rides by on a horse, that's what you see at eye level. King of kings, lord of lords. And he rides forth, a sword coming out of his mouth and eyes the flame of fire. That's an intimidating picture of our Savior. I mean, an intimidating picture of our Savior. That's why I think, uh, is it Horatio Spafford? My mind slipped me as well. That's why I think Horatio Spafford wrote words that when I first heard them, and I still go, those are kind of curious words in it as well. When it taught, the, the verse that talks about the return of Christ, he says, even so, it is well with my soul. Even so. Because, man, when heaven bursts forth and Christ returns, claims his children to his own. And then when he bursts forth and comes in judgment, even so, it is well with my soul. As a believer, it is well with my soul. But man, if I'm not a believer, I stand trembling at this warrior Savior coming to enact judgment on creation. Verse 13, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. 
Do you know most scholars would say that this is not the blood of Christ? You know what they say it is? All indications, the context and everything, the passage and what he's doing and coming, they say this is most likely the blood of defeated enemies. It's the picture of a warrior coming on a battlefield. Some of you know it all too well. But others have seen it on TV or movies where, where the, the battlefield is raging and, and you have some guys that will come in and new and they, their uniform's all clean and white and or you know, green, whatever, but it's clean. <laughs> and, and the people are kind of going, oh, great, the new guys. And then you have the guy walking on, their, their uniform is soiled, there's blood from past victories. And what do you know? He means business, he's experienced, and he's coming in victory already. <laughs> there's confidence. It's the picture of Christ coming forth with the blood of past enemies that he has trampled and enacted and brought, poured out the wrath of God on already that he's coming in victory and rule and defeat already he has already defeated his foe verse 15 this is crazy <laughs> from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Who are the enemies of God? Luke eleven twenty three. Luke eleven twenty three. What does it say? He who is not for me is against me. Who are the enemies of God? He who is not for me. If you do not stand with Christ then you are against Christ. If you do not stand with Christ, you're an enemy of God. You're at enmity with Him. And in Romans 2, you're storing up the wrath of God against yourself. Turn over to Isaiah 63 for a moment. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Listen to this. Who is this who comes from Edom? with garments of glowing colors from Bozrah. This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For, for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come I looked and there was no one to help and I was astonished and there was no one to uphold so my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth Revelation 19 is the ultimate and final fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 63 1-6 that Christ comes in victory Christ comes in judgment and Christ comes pouring out the wrath of God the Father. Justice will be served to the nations. A sword, a sharp sword, comes out of his mouth. Why? So he may strike down the nations. But yet at the same time, we, we read in the Psalms and we read throughout this is let the nations rejoice and, and we know that scripture calls us to take the gospel to the nations I, I read a quote this week that said that the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time 
if the gospel does not get there in time, if it's too late, it is not good news. It is not good news for those standing, seeing Christ coming. In this picture we have in Revelations 19, 11 through 16 that do not know Christ, it is not good news. It's too late. Because at this time when Christ comes like this, it's in judgment and wrath. In righteous, righteous judgment. I, I do think we need to be careful here. And, and the reason is, is this, is because the return of Christ is not all bad. The, the return of Christ is a glorious thing. It's a, it's a great thing. And, and I know Scott and I were talking earlier this week, and I see, I just don't think we think of it that much. I don't think we think about the, the return of Christ that often. But we, we talk about the cross, and we talk about the resurrection, and all these things that we don't spend a lot of time talking about when Christ returns and learn, yearning for that day. I've probably spent more time asking God to wait. God, please don't return before I get married. I'd really like to know what it's like to be married. God, please don't return before I have kids. I'd like to know. You know, God, it, you know please don't return before I can do this in ministry. I'd really like, you know, it's like, man, that's incredibly selfish. And honestly, for unbiblical. As a believer, we are to long for the return of Christ. The, the day that the Lord will tarry no more, that he will come and claim his people. We should long for that. There, there's two themes throughout the New Testament that we see. There's two things. When we talk about the end times and the return of Christ, there's two themes that we see. The first one is this, is the warrior Messiah of 1911 through 16. We don't hear that much. We, we don't read of that much. And like we said, there's only two places where Christ is described as coming in war. But we do know and we do see a lot of pictures in the New Testament of God coming and the final judgment, right? The wrath of God being poured out. The second picture is this, and, and this is the one we see a lot and we talk about because it's more comforting, it's easier on the ears, is the redeeming Messiah coming to claim those that he's adopted as his own. The, the Messiah coming to redeem us and, and, and or he's already redeemed us coming to claim his children to welcome us home to call us forth it is, listen to Second Thessalonians 7 the last part of 7 through 10 it says when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power there's the first thing now here's the second thing when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed so he's coming in retribution. This is a bad thing for those who do not know Christ. He's coming in judgment and retribution and to pay, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Those who do not know Christ will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction. But then he says, you know, he'll be magnified. He comes to be glorified in his saints. He'll be marveled at through the saints, that those called out to, for God's glory and his purposes, those who have been adopted in his family, stand before him and marvel at the wonder of their Savior. That many of us in, in this room, when Christ returns, that he will be glorified in his saints, it says, and that we will marvel at him, his wonder and his splendor. They will stand back and say, what a mighty Savior. What a mighty God. Praise God in worship. But we have the reality that not everyone will be there. 
Others will be trembling in utter fear and horror at what is happening as the warrior Messiah comes. There's some debate in in this as well that in Revelation 19 that that perhaps the the army, that, that nobody really knows exactly who that army is. Some scholars will say, no, it's just the angels of heaven. It's not the saints. Others will say, yes, it is the saints. It's the saints coming. Others will say, well, it's the saints and the angels. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. You know what? All I know is that on that day, I have nothing to fear. Reverent fear of a holy God, I'm sure I'll tremble. But in the righteousness of Christ, I'm going to stand. I don't know about you. I hope you stand with me. I, I mean, I, I beg and plead that you'll stand with me. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I, I, I shudder to think of those standing as an object of his wrath. So, so this, this just, it, it begs you to decide tonight where you stand. Where you stand? Do, do you identify, or will you identify? Will you be among those who long for the returning of Christ? When He calls His people forth, that you rejoice, and even so, it is well with my soul. Or do you stand with those who are going to be trembling in fear? The, the band's going to come up, and, and I want to I want to close our time by reading First Thessalonians to you as perhaps a closing encouragement to those who are believers and an appeal to those of you who are not believers. This is a beautiful picture of Christ. It's an amazing picture of Christ. And, and honestly, it's an intimidating picture of Christ. But those who are in Christ have the hope of resurrection and the return of Christ the surety that we are his and I hope this passage from 1 Thessalonians is an encouragement to you now as, the time, now as to the times and the epochs brethren you have no need of anything to be written to you for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night while they are saying peace and safety then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness. That the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do. But let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night. And those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love. And as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. What does a passage like this call us to do? As an unbeliever, it calls you to get right with Christ to submit your life to him and follow him 
But as a believer, it causes you to encourage one another all the more as the day approaches. It encourages you to take the gospel to the nations. It encourages you to get before God and say, God, not my will, but yours be done. Because I know that the gospel is not good news if it's too late. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to take the gospel to the nations. And I'm going to submit my life to that means. And I'm going to turn from a life focused on myself that we heard about this morning and focus my life completely and wholly on Christ who is a redeeming Savior but also a warrior Messiah. Let's pray. God, we, we hear of your word, your might, your sovereignty, your rule. God, the mystery of who you are. God, we read of a warrior Messiah coming to bring judgment. But God, many of us in here know the merciful Savior. And we're thankful to be adopted into the family of God. To be called out as a saint. And we're thankful for that, God. I pray that those of us in here that are believers, God, that you would spur us on this week to do whatever it takes to share the gospel. Whether that means going to Colonial Village or Hope Way, whether it means being vocal at work when we've been shy for so long, whether it means going to our neighbor's house or talking to a family member. God, I pray that we would honestly and sincerely bow before you and seek your will and not ours this week. And God, for those in here that do not know you, God, I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart, God, that you would bring new life to them, that they would call upon you and follow you as Lord. God, we just stand now and we worship you and cry out to you as a generation that wants to serve you and see you glorified. And God, we do pray that you would come in power and return soon, God. In Christ's name, amen.